On this episode of the Trauma-Informed Podcast with your host, Jeff Friedman, we have Holly Wood. And Holly Wood comes to us uh, from Orange County, California. Holly is a, a licensed marriage and family therapist that has extensive work working with uh, sexual assault survivors. She previously worked at a uh, rape crisis center. Go ahead and listen in to uh, my exciting conversation with Holly. All right. So just share with me a little bit where you're from and how, where, where you grew up and the people that you grew up with, how, how you feel that influenced your uh, decision to become a therapist and, uh, and specialize sure. in what, what you uh, specialize. Sure. So my name is Holly. I grew up in Riverside, Inland Empire, California. I'm currently living in Dana Point, but I grew up in an area that was mostly lower socioeconomic status, was filled with a lot of different, you know, people of different backgrounds, people of different financial statuses, different cultures and things like that. So that was really um, exciting to me to be around so many different people and people who didn't look like me. And then I actually didn't realize that I wanted to go into this field until I was pretty much done (laughs) with my first four years. So I did go to uh, UC Riverside in the city where I was from. And thought I wanted to be a surgeon, and then halfway through, I was realized that this was not for me, and I was just losing interest in it. And so I actually started taking uh, women's studies, gender and sexuality courses, and those were what were really exciting to me. And so learning about different gender and sexuality issues on top of you know my own personal experiences of trauma, my own identity as a survivor. And then working um, as a volunteer for my local rape crisis center at that time really kind of propelled and fueled me to be a therapist for sexual assault survivors specifically, but, you know, working with various different traumas. All right. Well, that's, that's awesome. Well, thanks for sharing that. Uh, this is a little bit more of a, more of a lighten things up a little bit more kind of is that. I don't know if you ever heard of this expression, how like, like Florida is often the news is seen as sort of like this center of a lot of where a lot of crazy things happen. Have you heard of sure. that? Yeah. So and I've heard there's two places that come to mind, other places outside of Florida that have, I've heard been compared to the Florida of that, that area. One, I'm from outside of Philly, uh, a town called Bryn Mawr, but there's this other part of outside of Philly, a suburb called Delaware County, which is, I've heard that being called the Florida of like Philly, but I've heard mm-hmm. Orange County being called the Florida of California. <laughs> and I, I was wondering if you have any thoughts about that. You know, I've never been to Florida, so I can't speak. Um, well, you don't have I, to be there particularly, just to the news stories. <laughs> but but um, it's definitely like a, been a cultural shift. Like, so from living in Riverside, where it's more liberal and a lot of different cultures. And then I went to Santa Monica, which was more um, white people and more people who were but still very liberal. And well, there's a lot of homeless people, though, there. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. And then going from there to South Orange County, which is a whole nother ship, still predominantly white, but a lot more uh, red and Republican. And I think that impacts people's, people's views, especially yeah, sure. with everything going on with COVID and stuff like that. So definitely, definitely cultural shifts throughout three different cities in California. Yeah. Well, actually, I know, um, I'm not going to really talk about that much, but I know 
I know two people that live in Orange County to me that, that fits sort of the weird Orange County kind of stereotypes. But, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, not, I don't know what, I mean, that idea that about like, it's kind of like the Florida of California. But. <laughs> okay. So what, in terms of, in terms of your work with trauma and like different techniques, what, like you said, uh, you do EMDR, what other, what other kind of stuff do you do? So I predominantly do EMDR. I'm a big believer in its effectiveness, but at the same time, I know it doesn't always um, click with people. So I, a lot of times we'll do a mix of like EMDR, some radical acceptance of the traumas and experiences, and then working through how to manage future triggers. I feel like EMDR is just really helpful for laying the groundwork and desensitizing from specific triggers that people have. But then especially like with my work with sexual trauma survivors, right? It's like, okay, we uh, reduce the symptoms of PTSD, doing things like EMDR, somatic experiencing and rebuilding that mind-body connection. And then it's like, now what? So what about sex after? And so that's where then I switch gears working on, you know, future templates for what would sex look like, how to experience pleasure, especially coming from a past of trauma. So it's pretty, um, pretty eclectic mix. Okay, cool. So what was, what was the experience like working in the Rape Crisis Center? It was, how can I describe that? You know, it was sad. It was, but also very informative. And I think the, the best thing I gained from that experience was what things look like for sexual assault survivors on like the policy level. So I would meet uh, a survivor for a rape exam or a sexual assault exam at the ho- local hospital, whichever hospital they sent me to. And I would often be met there with, you know, the nurses, but also the police officers that were coming to report. And it's, it was very telling, like how different disciplines are trained or not trained to work with sexual assault survivors and how policy impacts the procedures that are are, and how survivors are being handled when they do report. Okay. And uh, yeah, so I've, uh, some of my work with sexual assault survivors, one of the things I I always like to encourage people to, I mean, I guess it's kind of a double-edged sword, but I still like to encourage people to report uh, what happened and try to get some kind of, uh, what's the word, kind of, I don't know, I guess try to achieve some level of justice in terms of what the the wrong was done to them. But what's your, what's your experience, I guess, take on that, that, my experience is just to show them the whole, op- like yeah. the, the array of options that they have to let them, to let the survivor know what their rights are, what the process looks like for, you know, processing and the judicial system with things like this. Right. And to be really upfront and honest that unfortunately the percentage of people who do see justice right. is it's very small. Right. Yeah. And so I think it's really important that, um, you're doing the work on the other end with your own healing, so that way you don't bank your healing process on whether or not you see justice in the judicial system. Right. No, that's a that's a good point. But I mean, I guess I think there's something about it. I mean, there's uh, yeah, taking some actions on that. I think even even if maybe isn't there isn't justice obtained, that it just taking some steps. I think can be uh, helpful in some ways. Sure, sure. And just like empowering the client to like see what options they have and then to make that choice because, you know, rape and sexual assault aren't as much about sex as they are about power. So by giving the client these options and empowering them, it's a way for them to take their power back. And that's 
you know, can be done by taking some type of legal action or not. Yeah, but I mean, like, I guess a part of the unfortunate thing is that the due to the way the criminal justice uh, or the legal system is set up, it can be kind of, uh, can I guess, may, maybe make things worse for some people. Yeah, yeah, it's very, very tricky. But, you know, that's why we need good policymakers to help make some change and people who are informed with these issues doing the work. Yeah, what about, so how, uh, yeah, I guess, what, tell me a little bit about your, your work in the, the sexuality and, and that realm, and uh, you you have special training in that? And, right. Sure, sure. So I have post-master's training in sex therapy, and, then, and I'm working my way towards a sex certification, and I'm also just beginning my third year of my PhD in human sexuality with a focus on you know, clinical implications. And where are you doing that? So it is in San Francisco. It's called okay. the California Integral, California Institute for Integral Studies, but it's one of the two that are. You know, well, I've heard of it. CIS. Yeah. Yeah. I actually, uh, I started a program in human sexuality in Pennsylvania. And have you ever heard of it? Widener University. Yeah, so that's the other one. <laughs> that was the other one that was accredited, and I chose warmer weather and a little bit closer. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I just realized it wasn't for me. I mean, I, I felt like I was a little bit. I mean, I found relationships interesting. It was just that, like, I, I uh, now I feel it's been more common. But the, but at the time, like, I mean, well, at least you don't have any visible ones that that like I was like, the only person in the in the program without any tattoos, and it's like everybody. I just felt look very, very tatted and very non, um, <laughs> not what's the word, non heterosexual, which is nothing wrong with it. It's just that wasn't my, mm-hmm. and I felt that I didn't really connect with the the, the culture there. But it's, uh, yeah, well, my, I'm I'm lucky. My program has been is very diverse. Like people from all different locations across the country, some from out of the country, different cultural backgrounds, different socioeconomic statuses, different, you know, sexualities and gender preferences. So I'm I'm happy that there's such a big mix because the kind of people who need the services come from all these different various backgrounds. Right, sure. And uh, what about how how is it like like for you and being in California with the whole Me Too uh, kind of uh, movement going on? How was that experience like? I think the Me Too movement was really great in highlighting how prevalent sexual assault is and the disparities that exist in the legal system. I think it's important to remember that it's not over, and so there's still a lot of work to be done, but it's good to see that people are feeling empowered to speak out and that in some cases there has been you know, legal resolution in a way that honors the survivor. Yeah, what do you think about how the idea that, or what's your take on this, that, I mean, it's like that, I've heard that, like, the numbers or the percentages is significantly higher. I think it was, I don't remember the exact percentages, but, but like, the, the amount of people that, that develop PTSD after rape is much more significant than war, but yet we but usually associate PTSD with war. So I was wondering what you, what you think about that. Yeah, and I think, well, I think it's important to acknowledge that, you know, there's no hierarchy of trauma, right? So different different types of traumas can cause symptoms of PTSD or a diagnosis. And so 
I think a lot of times we think grand scale traumas like car accidents or war or things that we consider, you know, in therapy, we call them like big T traumas, but there are so many other things that can be traumatic. And a lot of times with sexual assault, it's multiple instances, right? So it's rarely that it's somebody that the survivor doesn't know. This could be happening multiple times in their relationship. And there's all these different layers that contribute to sexual assault and, you know, why a person doesn't want to speak out. So I think it's important to acknowledge that there is no hierarchy in trauma and that if it if someone experiences trauma and has the symptoms of PTSD, that doesn't necessarily have to be tied to war. Right, sure. But I, mean, I would put rape in the category of like the big, you know, definitely the big T trauma. But what about any thoughts about, I found it's interesting, the, the MDMA studies for PTSD. I think that's really interesting as well. So I know they're doing some studies with that, with MDMA and psilocybin in CIIS, but I'm not as familiar with those. Um, But I do think it's really interesting. I can't speak too much on it, but I do think it's really cool. Okay. Yeah, no, they're big with that. Uh, yeah, CIS for sure. Any any emerging things from the your field in sexuality that you find pretty exciting right now? Just looking at, I think what's what's most prevalent right now is looking at individuals who identify um, outside of the gender binary. So there's a lot of research lacking in trans and gender non-conforming individuals. So I think that's what's really, and, and with more visibility of trans and gender non-conforming individuals, I think that's what's really important right now to focus our work on. So that's interesting to me. And there's been some good works that have come out, like Tay Meadows released their research regarding being gendered in the 21st century. That's a really great work on people who've commonly been left out of sexuality research. Okay. Well, what about in terms of uh, like sex work? Well, what, what's your what are your what's your thoughts on, on that? I mean, I've heard different people argue for more that it, like decriminalization is more empowering to like sex workers versus legalization. Sure. What, what, what do you think? Sure. Like? Well, yeah, that's also a, a pretty hot topic right yeah. now, right? Following sesta pasta and like the different legal actions that have been taken to criminalize sex work. It's just I look at it as like. Sex work is one of the longest standing, you know, occupations, so to speak. And so I don't think that coming down and criminalizing sex work is helpful. I think of it from like a harm reduction standpoint, right? right? So where, where we're, you know, taking care of people in a way that they can feel safe to perform work that people are probably going to do anyway. Right. No, no, I support that 100%. I, I've uh, been a fan of, of harm reduction kind of practices. But, but, but it's interesting how, how, yeah, how like political... Uh, I'll give you an example. I don't know if, it came, if you heard about it. This actually ties into the, the, this, this little bit that it was about a few months ago, so the beginning phase of the quarantine, this guy that Andrew Gillum that he was a contender for the, the, the become the Florida governor, but he, he lost in a cr- close race to the current governor. But yeah, during the beginning of the quarantine, he was found. He was with another, he called it his friend, who was actually a male escort, male uh, sex worker escort mm-hmm. that uh, was having an overdose. And he called the cops and they found him in the room with, with the guy having the overdose. And mm-hmm. uh, it's just interesting to see some of the people that I'm friends with on Facebook, their response to it. I mean, 
the like the people that are a little bit more tend to be a little more conservative. They were real like saying, "Oh, he should be arrested and all this," and like and, and it's like, yeah, I mean, it was it was it seemed to be a consensual thing. There was nothing. There weren't mm-hmm. children involved, but people have get this moral thing around these like the drugs and sex that they feel mm-hmm. this kind of moral thing that uh, yeah sure. Sure. I think, yeah, moral panics definitely influence <laughs> the realm of sex and gender and all those different, yeah. all, all of my areas of study. And so it's unfortunate that uh, it's, it's unfortunate that the world can't come to some type of agreement on these things. But I definitely do think morality plays, plays a big part in, you know, the healthcare field and, yeah. in, you know, legality, politics, all that. Yeah, but I mean, when you're when you're having these kinds of situations, there are children involved, then it's you know it's a different story. But if it's adults, I'm of the believer that people, consenting adults, should be allowed to do what they want. Sure, sure. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, any are you doing your research now with the, the your doctoral work or? So I am currently in the phase where I'm preparing for comprehensive exams and then going to start doing some research. I'm looking at, you know, within my area of study, looking at pleasure post-sexual assault. Mm. Um, I've also, so while I was, so like a little caveat, while I was working at the Riverside Rape Crisis Center, I was also working retail and I needed another retail job (laughs) so that way I could you know, pay for school and everything. And so I chose a job that was open 24 hours at the local adult toy store. And so I've been a big proponent of sex toys as tools, as sexual wellness tools, as, you know, symbols of physically putting power into someone's hands, power and control over their pleasure into somebody's hands. And so my research is looking at, you know, meaning making around sex toys or sexual wellness tools from survivors or how to incorporate such tools into trauma recovery. Well, that's cool. All right. So uh, any, any final thoughts that you, you would like to share? At this point, no, just, I think, I think it's really important again to remember that there's no hierarchy in trauma that you know, one of the things I like to say about that is that uh, this wasn't, doesn't come from me, but I think the person I came across it from is that she had this very nice graphic around that. Her name's uh, Stacy Ann Chin. Okay. With two N's. And uh, yeah, it was basically saying all oppression is connected. I don't know that she even came up with it, but it's, she had a cool graphic around that. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And that, yeah, and especially, I think it's also important to remember that, like, you know, Trauma resulting from sexual assault is more so about power than about sex. And so if you're struggling with sex post-sexual assault, that's a common experience to have. But as long as you can work with a trained individual on how to reclaim your power and enjoy pleasure again, it's possible to recover from trauma and have a pleasurable sex life. 